before we get going, we'll clear up uh, a fairly common error once and for all. We've probably all heard the claim that we're not really sure whether Christ our Lord was actually born on December 25th. We don't really know his birthday. Just to demonstrate how ridiculous that statement is, I did an experiment yesterday. I opened up the directory and I called one of our mothers and I asked her a few questions. First question, do you remember the birthday of your eldest child? She sounds kind of puzzled and she said, yes. And I said, do you remember if the child was born in day or night? She said, yes. And I said, do you remember the time the child was born? She sounded really puzzled. I said, yes. I just said, thank you and hung up. It's a cinch bet. But if I called any of the moms here, you could all give the same answers to those three questions, right? What mother wouldn't remember the birth of a child, especially the first child? Uh, Well, how about the Blessed Virgin Mary? She's the perfect woman. Are we supposed to believe that she forgot when Jesus was born? Does anybody really think she forgot? Does anybody really think that the Blessed Virgin Mary the woman that God himself created to be his mother forgot his birthday. Let's get real. It's a no-brainer. Our Lady knew when Christ our Lord was born. And in case some of these people haven't noticed, St. Peter knew Our Lady. And the other apostles also knew Our Lady. So if our Lord hadn't told the apostles when he was born, they could have just asked Our Lady. One thing's for sure, they didn't make up the date of Christmas just to stick it on on December 25th, just to substitute for some pagan party. The whole idea is ridiculous. There's plenty more that could be said on this theme, but we can see the basic point. There's absolutely no reason to doubt the date of Christmas. If we know the church teaches something, or has always done something in a certain way, then we can be positive. But even if we can't explain it, it comes to us from on high. So we should never back down. It doesn't matter if we can explain it. We don't have anything to apologize for. We're proud to stick up for God, and so we should never back down. We don't need to fade in the face of these kind of patronizing remarks. Okay, so much for that, Eric. Let's turn to more substantial things. One of the odd things about our fallen state is that it's so darned easy for us to get used to things They're actually so amazing, but we haven't considered how amazing the situation is. Today, let's take a closer look at one of the more amazing aspects of the first Christmas. We'll try to get a sharper focus on that first Christmas by starting by considering the actual condition of mankind on that first Christmas. The revealed Word of God says in Ephesians 2.3 that by nature we're born children of wrath. Thanks to Adam, we're all officially born at war with God, a war declared by Adam in the original sin. So, even though Adam, in Adam, all mankind fell, still God, after the fall, continued to send down angels to guide men. It's something he didn't do for the angels. They fell, they fell all the way. End of story. He sent down angels to guide us. And in fact, as we've seen before, the fathers teach that each nation has its own guardian angel. The main job of a guardian angel in a nation is to teach the people and guide the people in that, of that nation the ways of righteousness and holiness. The fathers also teach that before the coming of Christ, the Gentile nations increasingly rejected the knowledge of the true God that they had inherited from Noah. We're all descended from Noah. Because of this rejection of God, 
the guardian angels of the nations had an increasingly difficult time just trying to prevent their people from falling farther and farther into sin, idolatry, and outright devil worship. Yet in spite of the fact that with original sin, we declared war, we were officially at war with God, and in spite of the fact that the nations kept falling farther and farther into this kind of sin, what was the song of the heavenly army on that first Christmas night? Now, we already know the story, but let's think about it as if we didn't know the rest of the story. What would we expect? Keep in mind we're talking about an army that totally outnumbers the opposing force, an angelic army that's absolutely superior in every sense. I mean, the angels could just squish us like rotten grapes. It, it, it's just a joke if we're going to declare war on the holy angels. But, and we, the men, that's the opposing force, seem to use every opportunity to insult and mock and disobey the angelic army's commander. That's God. Every chance we get in every way. That's what a sin is. So what would we expect this army to be singing? Now, if we were writing the story and didn't know the answer, we'd expect something like this. You guys are going to get it. You know, he's coming after you. Something like that. Isn't that what we'd expect? Well, that's Judgment Day. I mean, that's scary. But we're not there yet. We're talking about Christmas right now. What are they up there singing? They're not up there going, all right, you guys. You've been, you've been getting in our face. You've been insulting us. But now we're, now, now we're going to turn loose on you. No. They're singing glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace to men of goodwill. If that isn't completely astonishing, then we ought to step back and think about that for a while. We're at war with God. And the enemy of God, we're the enemies of God, so our enemy, uh, so to speak, army is up there giving us peace signs, okay? And what do we do to deserve that? Eusebius gives a clear description of the condition of fallen man on that first Christmas. Quote, in such a flood of evil, the angels who had first been set in charge of the nations could do nothing for their subjects. The peoples, each in its own way, were driven on by evil spirits and fell into a frightful abyss of vices. Even the Jewish nation was drawn into their corruption. Now, since such great evils had fallen upon the whole earth, since none of the angels was able to prevent these evils, and since the race God loved was wallowing in the depths of iniquity, and since the activity of the demons continued to increase day by day, the Savior himself came to men and helped his angels in their work for the salvation of men, close quote. The fathers tell us that on that Christmas night in Bethlehem, when the guardian angels of the nations, that's who those angels were, the angels of the nations, and all of a sudden they saw the little Lord Jesus wrapped up in swaddling clothes and laying in the manger, they immediately realized that their Lord and God had stooped down to earth to come to the aid of not only the Hebrew people, but indeed of all the nations on earth. This is why the guardian angels of the nations are there. Not just St. Michael, the guardian angel of the Hebrew people at that time. He'd come to help his angels. Our Lord had come to make it finally possible to turn around their poor, confused people from the road to hell and onto the path of righteousness. So what do we sing on the first Christmas? We're seeing an ambassador from heaven, the second person of the most blessed trinity, coming on a peace mission to his enemies. He came in peace to his enemies. That's us, men. That's what we're really seeing on Christmas. And what are we to do to deserve that? It's not a single thing. Not a single thing. From the crib all the way to the cross, our Lord is constantly showing us love of his enemies. That's us, men.
And what have we done to show him our appreciation? What have we ever done to show him how grateful we are that even though we are his enemies, he forgave us and became man for our sake? It's a great mystery of Christmas. He came on a peace mission to his enemies. He forgave us first. That's one of the great mysteries laying right there in the manger. He forgave us first. And he commanded us to imitate him. He commanded us to love your enemies, to do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute you. So how are we supposed to love our enemies? We'll rely largely on the late great Father Dion for clues here. The first thing to keep in mind is that if God commanded something, it's possible. God never commands the impossible. He commands us to love our enemies. He didn't say a single thing about liking them. It's not the same thing at all. To love someone means to will the good for them. Liking someone is an emotional response to that person. It's easy to see the difference between loving someone. You can love someone without liking them. Parents do it with their teenagers all the time. Okay? Parents love their teenagers even when they don't like them. Do we love our enemies? Each one of us should ask himself, how do I react when I'm attacked, when I'm mocked, when I'm persecuted, when people around me are making me suffer? How do I react? Am I showing God the gratitude I have for what he's done for me, becoming a man by loving my own enemies? He loved me, and I'm a sinner. Can't I love people that are sinning against me? Do I have a problem here, or have I ever really practiced this virtue? In order to grow in holiness, we have to grow in this virtue. And to grow in the virtue, we have to practice it, okay? God wants us to be saints. If he wants us to be saints, that means he wants us to have this virtue that he's demonstrating by becoming a man, the virtue of loving our enemies. Since he wants us to have the virtue, he has to make sure that we're going to have enemies. God will make sure others treat us unjustly, just so we can practice the virtue of love of our enemies. He's guaranteed it. I'm not making this up. 2 Timothy 3.12 All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the inspired, inerrant word of God. I probably don't have to tell this crowd that. If you're trying to be holy, you'll be mocked. You'll be persecuted. You'll be hated. It comes with the territory. Okay? Given that we'll have enemies, and given that we're commanded to love them, what are we supposed to do then? Okay? When someone's given us a bad time, we can say this little prayer. We've heard this before. God, make him happy in this life and the next. When someone's given us a bad time, we say the prayer. God, Make him happy in this life and the next. Remember that love is in our will. It's not in our feelings, and it's not in our emotions. We may still feel flaming mad at this guy. We may want to hit him, you know, throttle him, something like that. This guy that's tormenting us. But as long as we can say this little prayer, God, make him happy in this life and the next, 
We've done the most loving possible thing we could do for that man, which is to pray for his happiness here and hereafter. Loving someone is to will the good for him, and by performing this little act, we've willed the highest possible good for this man, which is eternal happiness. Our feelings don't matter. Love is in our will. It's not in our feelings, okay? The great bishop and doctor of church, St. Francis de Sales, says, quote, If I'm told that someone has spoken ill of me, or that I'm being opposed in some way, in an instant, anger flames up and every vein swells. But if amidst all this, I just turn to God, making act of charity for the person who's offended me, there is no sin. I say, even if a thousand kinds of thoughts should rise up against this person, and not for the space of one day, but of several, provided that from time to time I disavow them, there's nothing wrong at all, for it's not within my power to check those feelings. Close quote, St. Francis de Sales. This is important to understand in the spiritual life. Our feelings are not completely under reasonable control, part of the result of the fall. But as long as our will is, is corresponding to what God wants, our feelings can be in all kinds of things, and we're not sinning. Especially if you have a hot temper, this is important to know, because your temper might get going. As he says, St. Francis Sales had a terrible temper. He's one of the great doctors of the church, a great saint. By practicing this kind of thing, he became, he was famous for being meek. But for years, people would say, I can't believe you're so calm. He says, oh, if you only knew what was going on inside, he's having this whole storm, because it was, it was everything in his power to not just run, just reach over the table and grab somebody. And it, you're saying these prayers, there's no sin, okay? Virtues aren't in our feelings. There's four things that happen when we say a prayer like God making happiness, life and next. First off, we're growing in that virtue that our Lord is teaching us here in the manger, the love of our enemies. So we're growing in it. Second off, we're not sinning. Okay, we've, we've avoided committing a sin. Third off, we're actually growing in holiness. We've said a prayer. We're growing in sanctifying grace. We've made an act of charity. It doesn't matter what your feelings are doing. You're actually growing holiness. Fourth off, we're obtaining grace for the person persecuting us. That's why God became a man, to give grace to his enemies. That's us. That's why he's got a confessional back there, to give grace to his enemies. We're not in there going, I, I go to confession every week. I'm not in there telling God what a good guy I am. You know, I'm in there because I'm saying, you know, I'm messing up. I've been in your face. Please excuse me, huh? Sin makes us the enemies of God. Of course, there's degrees to this. But why does God set up the confessional? Precisely so he can practice love as enemies. Well, what an example to the rest of us, okay? We can imitate them. We have his example. Think about our Lord being nailed to the cross. All right? What did he say? Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. He's praying for them as they're killing him. And his feelings are more sensitive than ours. And he's praying. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, forgive them, Lord. Now they've apologized and made me feel comfortable and pulled out the nails. And, and, and they're, now they're being really nice. That's not the prayer, okay? We want to imitate our Lord. He comes on the peace mission in the manger. From the crib to the cross. It's the same. The love of the enemies. Okay? <clears throat> don't worry if we don't forget things. Because we could be sitting there, and all of a sudden we remember something and we get mad again. doesn't matter if we say that prayer. Forgiving isn't the same as forgetting. 
We're not going to forget. The last thing in spiritual life to be healed are the memories. You should pray for that. That's a, a grace to have forgetfulness. You should pray for the grace of forgetfulness. You want to forget things that are sins in your past life or whatever. It's an important thing. Certainly priests have to pray for that because we hear a lot of sins that we don't want to remember. You know, we have to deal with a lot of things. And God will give it to you. You forget this stuff. But it's the last thing in the spiritual life to be healed. So you could come along and someone reminds you of some horrible injury you received. And all these feelings come back. Hey. We say that prayer, God, make him happy in this life and the next. No sin, okay? All right, we're commanded by God to love our enemies. It's in the will. One other thing, what about the situation where someone has had such a horrible offense? It's unbelievable, it's crushing them down. They can't find the strength in them to forgive their enemy. Here's what you do, you turn it over to our Lord. In prayer, you turn over to our Lord and say, Lord, I can't forgive these people right now. I can't forgive this person. But you can. I want you to come into this part of my life, this memory, this particular situation, these emotions, these scars. I turn all that over to you, and I ask you to forgive them for me. If you say that regularly, he will heal that. It's an important thing for people that have been very, very damaged, because there's evil in the world, there's no question. But he's not, and our Lord understands it better than anyone. He will heal it. He came to make all things new. That's really important for those of you that have really been smashed down by the cross. He can take charge of that part of your life. And you bring it up to him in prayer and bring it up into communion. If you're faithful to that prayer, he'll do it. He came to give peace on earth to men of goodwill. Notice this doesn't say good men. That's good news for all of us. Huh? Men of goodwill. That means we want to be good. It means we want to do what he wants to do in spite of our own sin, sinfulness and stupidity. And that we have the humility, at least, to ask him to come and change us. This Christmas, let's take some time to think about the incredible mercy God showed us by coming down in mercy, not in glory. He didn't come in judgment at Christmas. He didn't come to punish us. He came to save us. He came as a commanding general, but he came as a baby so we wouldn't be scared of him. His angels showed up, but they sang songs of peace and not of war to people that are at war with him. Spend some time thinking about that and individually, how you have participated in this war against God and how much mercy he showed you that I'd turn around and say, all right, I'm going to try to practice love of my enemies. I'm going to show my gratitude to you by imitating you more perfectly. We want to imitate that. And let's try to keep that prayer in our heart as the guardian angels of the nation sang that first Christmas night. Glory to God in the highest and on peace, on earth peace to men of goodwill. God bless you and Merry Christmas.